0: Could be seated, I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We finally made it to chapter 2 in our study. Remember, we said that this is Paul's letter that he's writing to the church at Philippi, one of his favorite churches, one of those churches that he has a unique partnership with in the gospel. They supported him, encouraged him, prayed for him, and he's writing to them. In this section of the, the letter, he's calling the church at Philippi to humility. I love the story that's told of Harry Ironside. He was a well-known preacher and author of my dad's generation He was telling a friend that he was struggling with the issue of humility, and his friend said, I tell you what, you want to be humbled, put one of those sandwich boards on and walk downtown Chicago with the gospel printed on that sandwich board, you know, the little thing that hangs over your shoulders, and just walk around with the gospel message and see what happens. So he took his friend up on it and went to the business district of Chicago and had that placard on and walked around, and he said it was one of the most humiliating experiences he'd had in his whole life, and as he was taking that, that board off, he thought to himself, there's not another person in Chicago who would be willing to do what I just did. Humility is one of those difficult things, right? When you think you've done it, when you think you've reached humility, that's when pride steps in. Someone said that humility is essential to successful relationships. It's been called the oil that makes the intersecting gears of human personalities Turn without grinding on each other. I like that. So I want you to think about humility as being the oil that keeps us, congregation, together as our gears grind together. Do you ever grind together with someone else? (laughs) Definitely, because we're different. God puts us in this body. We've talked about that, how important that is to look at our uniqueness. Well, we're going to read this section of chapter 2, which is one of the, the great hymns of the church of that day. Some have suggested that this section in Philippians chapter 2 was written by Paul. Some have suggested that Paul just took that hymn that the church was reciting, that poem that they recited, and used it in this context in Philippians chapter 2. I'm not sure what the most accurate part of that is, but we know that this is a, a, a poem, a hymn that the church came to recite. Look with me at verse 5. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, Paul writes. And listen to this. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, verse 7, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. For this reason, verse 9, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul calls the church to have the mindset of Christ. This translation uses the word attitude. A lot of different translations put in there. He's he's saying, I want you to have the mindset of Christ. He is saying that to know true humility, to have the humility that we need to get along with one another in the body of Christ, you need to look at the example of Christ. And here's how he did it. So let's just walk through this, uh, this great theological passage Number one, we need to have the mindset of Christ. That's the the title, that's the the highlight, that's to underscore what Paul is trying to say. Verse one, he says, make your own attitude, in verse five, make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Someone said, outlook determines outcome. My father-in-law used to say when he preached, attitude determines altitude. In other words, my mindset is going to determine how far I go in my Christian walk. And he's calling us not to have this arrogant, look what I've accomplished mindset, but to have a mindset that Christ had, an attitude of humility. He says, I want you to be selfless. I want you to have this same attitude, this same mindset that Christ had that's exhibited in the incarnation and the crucifixion. The choir just sang about it. By the way, that song is the gospel. This passage right here is the gospel, that God loved us, that he sent his only son to die on a cross for us. They paid the price for our sins, and then once again conquered death, that he rose from the grave. That's the the gospel. And it's mentioned in this passage very clearly in all these theological terms. Have the mindset of Christ. 25 years or so ago, when the New York Yankees were at their their peak of Major League Baseball, they were the dominant team there. Their manager would gather all the rookies together, and this is what he would say to them. He would say, Boys, it's an honor just to put on the New York pinstripes. So when you put them on, play like world champions, play like Yankees, play proud. Here's what he was saying You're a Yankee now. When you wear the uniform, play like a Yankee. That's who you are. Here's what Paul says. You now are a follower of Christ if you've trusted Christ as your personal Savior. Not if you're just a church member, but if you come to that place in your life where you've asked God to forgive your sins and invited him to take lordship of your life. If you're that place, he says, you now are a follower of Christ. That's your name. You put on that uniform. Live it. Here's what he says in verse 1 there. Since you are, this is Kevin's paraphrase and um, I'll say explanation, okay? Adding to this. You, follower of Christ, belong to him now. You should wear that uniform with humility. You should live like Christ lived. So now let's look at this humility, the example of his humility. Number two, if you're taking notes, we need to learn from this humility of Christ. He says you, if you're a follower of Christ, will have that mindset. You should have it. And here's what you need to do. Learn from his example. Learn from the humility of Christ. Verse 6 through 8. We'll just walk through this. First of all, he relinquished his place. By the way, there have been a whole lot of commentaries and scholars and sermons and manuscripts printed trying to explain exactly what it meant for Jesus Christ to leave, relinquish his place. And I'm going to do my best to explain it. Look at verse 6. The Bible says who, referring to Jesus, existing in the form of God... Did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. We'll talk about that in just a minute. His place was God in eternity. This form of God means his very nature was God. It's referencing his identity, who he was. Not not that he looked like God, but that he was God. The form of God means that is his identity. David Jeremiah says it this way. All that God is, Jesus Christ was and is and ever will be. He is God. He existed throughout eternity from eternity past to eternity future. I just jotted down a few passages that that highlight this truth because I want to really drive this home. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So John says in chapter 1, the first part of that, the Word was God. And then if you skip all the way down to verse 14, the word became flesh and and made his dwelling among us. That's referring to Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says this of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In verse 19 in Colossians 1. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The fullness of deity, the fullness of God to dwell in him. First Timothy 3.16. And most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. But what? That's the gospel right there. But I want to focus on the fact that, that Paul says to Timothy, he was manifested in the flesh. He was God in the flesh. In Hebrews chapter 1, I love this section, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by prophets in different times and different ways. In these last days, he has spoken by, to us by his Son. God has appointed him, heir of all things, and made the universe through him. Look at verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He is referring to the deity of Christ. You need to know this. If you're a Christian, this is an essential biblical theological truth. Jesus is God. He is not a little God. He is not just the Son of God. He is God. And God came in the flesh. We'll look at that in a minute. But he, this passage says, he existed in the form of God. He was God, and he relinquished that. Some have said it this way. He did not hold on to that lofty position. Some translations say he did not grasp that. He didn't say this, I'm God, I'm not going down to them. He could have said that. He could have said that if the father had said to the son, now I want you to go become in the flesh, he could have said no. But he chose. The Bible says no one takes my life, I willingly give it. Jesus laid it down for us. A. W. Tozer said it this way: He veiled his deity when he came, but he did not void his deity. I like that. Jesus walking in the flesh was still God in the flesh. Some have said that when God came in the person of Jesus Christ, He set aside His deity. That is inaccurate. He is God in the flesh. He, but He relinquished that place. Just an illustration that helps me. Uh, Brian Campbell tells a um, chapel tells an illustration of a, an African missionary who told a story about a chief in one of those African tribes and he was the strongest man in the village and he had been put in this place of uh, by his family and by his culture to be the chief and he he had this elaborate robe that he would wear in this headdress and it it's fascinating when you go to Africa and you go back into some of those villages and see the colorful garments and stuff that people wear I'd be wearing a t-shirt and cutoffs it's so hot out there but they wear these huge robes in this headdress and a man fell in a well And he was down at the bottom of the well, and he had broken his leg, and he couldn't get out. And the village knew that nobody could get him out, so they went to the chief, and they began to appeal to him. We need help. We We don't know what to do. So the chief went, and he looked down there, and he saw this man at the bottom of the well with a broken leg. And he took off his headdress, and he set it aside. He took off his robe, and he laid it down, and he climbed down those slats that go down in the well that a lot of those African wells are, are built like. He got down to the bottom. He got that guy up on his shoulders, and he carried him out of the well, laid him aside, rescued him, Picked up his robe, put it back on, put on his headdress. That's a picture of what Christ did for us. He rescued us. He didn't stop being God. No, any more than the chief didn't stop being the chief. He was still the chief. But he set aside the regalia in order to rescue that person. Isn't that great that Christ did that for us? He relinquished his place. Secondly, he renounced his privileges. He renounced his privileges. Look at verse 6 again, that last part. He did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the role of a slave. Let's just focus on that first part there, verse 6. Although he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, he's renouncing his privileges. He doesn't hold on to his his, uh, position and his privileges. Someone said, Christ surrendered that which he loved in order that he might serve those whom he loved. He made a choice to become a slave. Some translations say servant there in verse 7, but it's the word slave. He chose to become a slave for us to rescue us. Listen, if there was ever a person, if there was ever anyone who had the right to say, I'm not going to be a slave, it was Jesus. Jesus. The word for eternity could have said, No, I don't want to be a slave, but he chose to be a slave for us. Verse 7 says, He emptied himself. That's an incredible Greek term that that scholars have spent so much time talking about. This emptying of himself. What did that mean? I believe, I love the way J.B. Phillips translates this He stripped himself of all privilege. That's what it means. When he did not consider himself, uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped, he emptied himself. He stripped himself of all privilege. It doesn't mean he laid aside his deity. It doesn't mean he laid aside his attributes. It doesn't mean he ceased to be God while he was on earth. By the way, all of those, if he had ceased those, he wouldn't be qualified to be a sinless redeemer. He was God in the flesh. A.T. Robertson said it this way, of what did Christ empty himself? Not of his divine nature, that was impossible. He continued to be the son of God, undoubtedly. Christ gave up his environment of glory. It's another way to understand that. That helps me. He gave up his environment of glory. Again, David Jeremiah said it this way, Christ voluntarily surrendered the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He never ceased to possess them all, but he voluntarily put himself under the control of the Holy Spirit in their exercise. Tony Meredith said it this way, he did not consider being God grounds for getting, but forgiving. So much could be said about this, this emptying of himself, renouncing his privileges. I'm spending a lot of time on these two first ones because it, it's important as a follower of Christ that you understand the theological significance of this. C.S. Lewis wrote, it, wrote this. He said, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he does not come down and up again to bring the whole ruined world up with him. He has a picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. And he must almost disappear under the load before he can incredibly straighten his back and march off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. It's this picture of God stooping down and picking up lost humanity. Paul calls us to have that attitude, being willing to lay down our life, to set aside everything, to be able to go and rescue others. Jesus did that for us. Praise God for that. Let this attitude be in you. Be willing to become a slave of others. That doesn't sit too well with us, does it? Be willing to be that. Later in, in the last part of this book, he calls out a couple of people in the church, Yodi and, and Syntica, a couple of ladies in the church that were disagreeing, and, and, and he's calling them to this humility to lay down their lives for one another, for each other. Imagine what it would be like if everybody emptied themselves like Christ did. For those two ladies in the church to empty themselves and put others first. That's what Paul is saying. We need to, that's what the, the, he's calling the church to do. Philip Yancey tells the story of the Queen of England coming to visit the United States. She brought 4,000 pounds of luggage with her. I made a list. Two outfits for every occasion a mourning outfit, like to be in mourning just in case someone died. She had to be dressed right for that. 40 pints of plasma, I'm not sure why. A white leather toilet seat cover her own hairdresser, two valets, a host of other attendants, $20 million worth of luggage for her to come visit the United States. The Bible says Jesus emptied himself. He didn't bring any baggage with him. A simple, humble visit out of eternity into our space and time In chapter 13 of John, where Jesus gathers the disciples there, there's this incredible illustration of of this servant mentality. just want to look at that. In John 13, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So... Since he knew who he was, why he came. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, tied it around himself. Next he poured water in the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. And he wasn't saying to them, wash my feet like I'm washing your feet. He's saying to them, wash one another's feet like I'm washing your feet renouncing privileges, becoming a servant. The disciples in that context at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, they were jockeying for position in the kingdom. Remember? Who gets to sit next to you? Who gets to be the one of honor? And Jesus is becoming a servant. He renounced his privileges and emptied himself for us. Next, he restricted his presence. He restricted his presence. Look at verse 7. Emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men. Bondservant, slave, the same term. He limits his presence. He, he, he gave up his Unbounded, universal freedom to go anywhere, be anywhere all the time. And he limited his presence, restricted his presence. Let me move on to the next reality here in verse 8. He realized his purpose. I want to get to that. He realized his purpose. Look at verse 8. He humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was his purpose. The death of Jesus was not not an accident. It was not plan B. It was not, oh, no, what am I going to do now? God God designed it It in in his plan for eternity. The Bible says that Jesus was the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? That was God's plan and purpose all along. That he would come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, and give his life for us. In Mark chapter 10 Jesus said the son of man came not came to seek and to save that which was lost not to be served but to seek and save that which was lost Hebrews chapter 2 says that he came so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, Now since children have have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. He came as a man so that he could die as a human. Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. He was the God man. He wasn't 50-50. He was fully God, fully man. There's a story told of ancient Rome where a a slave heard that his master was about to be assassinated. So the slave ran and got his master's robe and cloak and put it on and waited for the assassins. They did not know the man. They just knew what cloak he would be wearing. And the assassins showed up and they killed the the slave because they thought he was the master. That's what Jesus did for us. He took on our cloak of humanity so that death could be put to death. Death. And lastly, he resumed his position. Verse 9, he resumed his position. This is where it gets good. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. He resumed his position. Acts tells us as Jesus was, after he'd completed his earthly ministry and his death, burial, and resurrection and appeared to his disciples, he was taken up into heaven the same way that he came. He ascended. He resumed his position. Peter said in chapter 2 of Acts, as he's preaching the Pentecost sermon, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. resumed his position, that's who he is. He is God who came, became man, took on our humanity in humility so that he could give his life for us and then he ascended to be with the Father. Teddy Roosevelt was one of those presidents that was known for roughhousing in the White House with kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, all the kids would be around and uh, he'd wrestle with them, play with them growl, be monster, all that stuff. And then when he was done, they'd go off and play. And he'd he'd resume the the office of the presidency, just go right back to doing presidential stuff. And that's like Jesus. I just picture him coming and being with mankind and doing what mankind did and then just stepping right back into the role as the word from eternity past. So in light of all that, Uh, This last point is some application. We need to be moved by the universal response of mankind. Since Jesus did this for us, we need to be moved. You need to be motivated. We need to be uh, in awe of the universal response of mankind. I I don't want you to miss this. I'm going to restate verse 10 and 11 for us, all right? The first one is this. Everyone will acknowledge his lordship everyone will acknowledge his lordship. Look at verse 10. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. I want you to be moved by that. I want to be moved by the fact that one day, every person who has ever lived will bow their knee to Jesus. And they will have to acknowledge that he is God. But let me tell you something, the majority of people who are going to have to do that won't be doing that as as followers of Christ. They're going to be doing that because they're forced to recognize that he's God. And they'll stand before him and receive the judgment as they've rejected Christ. Sir Fred Hoyle was an astronomer, an avowed atheist from the University of Cambridge. And he basically said there is no God. And he started doing some calculations in the area of gravity. I'll spare you all the, the scientific stuff here because it gets confusing. But here's, here's what he ultimately discovered, that if one trillionth of one percent, okay, if gravity were one trillionth of one percent stronger, he said our universe would reverse its course. It would have collapsed catastrophically. He said it would end in the big crunch, He goes on to say, if if gravity was one trillionth of 1% weaker, our universe would have flown apart, and there would be no stars and galaxies. So one trillionth of 1%, that's a whole bunch of zeros after a decimal point. If gravity was that much off, either stronger or weaker, there would be no way we could exist. And he computed it and computed it and went on and on and on. And here's what he finally discovered. He discovered that the odds of our being accidents of nature are comparable to the likelihood of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling scrap metal into a fully functioning Boeing 747. <laughs> now that's a person who says there's no God. He said it is so small as to be negligible that, that, that even if a tornado were to blow through the entire... <laughs> I love this. If a tornado were to blow through the- enough junkyards to fill the whole universe one still has to arrive at the conclusion that there must be intelligent design for us. Now, there is an atheist looking at the facts, ultimately saying, I'm going to have to acknowledge that there is a God. My prayer for people is that they would acknowledge that before they pass this life into eternity. But I need to be moved by the fact that people will acknowledge that one day. And secondly... I want to state verse 11 this way. Everyone will confess his lordship. Everyone will confess his lordship. Look at verse 11. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Saddam Hussein, Adolf Hitler. Plug in anybody's name. One day we'll have to acknowledge Jesus is God. He is who he said he was. He did what he said only he could do. Folks, that should stir us, that those people will go into eternity and one day stand before God without excuse. And they're going to have to acknowledge, yes, he is God, and I've rejected him. That might be you today. You might have said, I really don't want God to be Lord of my life. Let me tell you, one day you will have to acknowledge it. And if you acknowledge it this side of death by recognizing that Jesus Christ came and that he died and that he rose again, and he wants to be the, the Lord of your life, if you acknowledge this side of death, you get to spend eternity with him, praising him. And you'll be one of those tongues that confesses to his glory with joy and bowing your knee with joy because you belong to him and you're with him and you'll spend eternity with him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. No excuses. No exceptions. No exemptions. Have you made that commitment of your life to him? If you haven't, I encourage you to do it today. Let's pray together.